I'll read verses 5 through 8. Now I want to remind you, though you know all things, that Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as these in gross sexual immorality, and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word today, that you would bless the preaching of the word. Help me, Jesus, pour out the Holy Spirit on me. Pour out the Holy Spirit on our congregation. Let us be spirit-filled as your word goes out forth to us this morning. Change our hearts, change our minds. Sanctify us more and more. For those who don't know you, save them for yourself through the fruitfulness of your word pointing to your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're going to be focusing on what what Jude focuses on in verses 5 through 8, and that is root sins that must be repented of towards God which can only be done by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, which is offensive to many in our day and age. It's offensive to us. It's offensive to outsiders. It's offensive to other Christians. Luke saw a little bit of that a week ago. By and large, the evangelical church has been avoiding root sins and only focused on fruit sins in which a sinner does not need the power of the gospel of Jesus or the work of the Holy Spirit to turn from. In other words, the evangelical church has neglected the inside of the cup and the plate and only focused on the outside of the cup and the plate. Matthew 23, 25 through 26, our master says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgent. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. When we start backwards, it doesn't work. It turns into a religious exercise. So an example, instead of exposing a person's heart and pointing out the root sins such as unbelief, stubbornness, rebellion, and pride, which are internal sins directly aimed against God and only seen by God, most people will focus on the fruit sins such as lying, stealing, adultery, being disobedient to parents, and point out these external sins against other people that are seen by other people in such a way that they will never have to repent of the root sins towards God. So we want them to clean up the cup because those external fruit sins are embarrassing. They embarrass us. But we never get to the root problem. 
So we're going to go over some of those today in Jude. And we've been, I've been pointing those out as I've went through Jude verses 5 through 7. Because <clears throat> Jude gives us examples of these from the Old Testament. And before we get started on, on Jude 8 today, which we're going to look at, this is going to be part one of two sermons on Jude 8. We're going to look at verse 7 a little bit more, because I didn't get to finish that off last time. So Jude 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as these in gross sexual immorality, and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So, if you've read the Genesis Genesis narrative, Genesis 17, 18, 19, Genesis 13. Have you noticed the conversation between the Lord and Abraham in Genesis 18, 16 through 33, that Abraham only intercedes for the city of Sodom and not the other cities that the Lord is about to destroy? Have you studied that? He never intercedes for the smaller cities. He never intercedes for Gomorrah. He was ready for them to be wiped out, it seems. He only intercedes for Sodom. That can be your own study, your own homework. Jude says these four cities have indulged in in gross sexual immorality here in Jude 7. And I said that Indulged the meaning they gave themselves up to or yielded themselves to this sexual immorality without restraints or control. And this has the idea that it started out a small sin and then became uncontrollable. James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. And Jude said they had indulged. They started out small in this sexual immorality. And I want to make something clear. Sexual immorality is a sin. But... Sexual desire between a man and woman in the marriage covenant is good. It is a desire that is built in us from God, and it is good to satisfy that appetite between the husband and wife. We should never think that that desire is a sin. But sexual immorality, fornication, adultery is sinful and must be repented of. So they moved on after indulging in that, Jude verse 7, and having gone after strange flesh. And the word gone here means to depart from. They departed from the natural. And in this context, they departed from the natural flesh to go after strange or unnatural flesh. So in this context, verse 7, we see the people started with sexual immorality, which is fornication and adultery, so that it could have just started slow with flirting with another woman who was not your wife. 
Maybe he could have been looking at her like David from the rooftop. And it wasn't a sin to see her until a desire came, a lustful desire. And it started small. And because it wasn't repented of, it grew. Because they refused to turn back to God's way, it grew. So when they are not satisfied with this sin of sexual immorality, instead of turning from this sin to God's way, they went on to strange flesh, looking and wanting to be satisfied from that sin. And they were never satisfied. Proverbs 2.19, None who go into her, the prostitute, nor do they regain the paths of life. They don't come back. When you go into this sin, you may never come back. One man said, when the stone runs downhill, it does not come to rest until it reaches the bottom. You start sliding down that slope, you're going to eventually be at the bottom. Strange flesh is also known as perversion and is the act of unnatural relations, otherwise known as sodomy, or today we call it homosexuality. Locke calls homosexuality a wicked act. Don't ever think that it's not sin against God. Genesis 19.7, Lot says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly as the men are trying to pursue whom they believe are other men that are visiting the town. How do we know that Lot is talking about homosexuality? Genesis 19.8, Lot says, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men. Lot knows what these men in Sodom are after. These men don't want Lot's daughters. They have no desire for women anymore. Can you imagine that? And how can I say that homosexuality is a wicked act? I mean, God has not even given the law to Moses yet, and Moses has not given the law to the people yet. So how can you quote the law? How can you say this is a wicked act? Well, in Genesis 18, 17 through 19, we have what the Lord tells to Abraham. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And we know that Abraham was quick to train all the people under him. He was quick to circumcise all the men under him. Lot was trained by Abraham. And we can tell because Lot lives with an abundant supply of everything because obviously he learned how to run his business from Abraham. Abraham taught Lot everything. Lot knows that this act is wicked against God. And we do too. So I said when I was preaching on this, that the root sin was pride, in verse 7 here. And the fruit sin was defiling the flesh, in verse 8. So 
So how can I say that the root sin of sexual immorality and homosexuality is pride? Well, let's look at the definition of pride from the Webster's 1828. It means inordinate self-esteem, an unreasonable conceit of one's own superior superiority and talents, beauty, wealth, accomplishments, rank, or elevation in office, which manifests itself in lofty affairs, distance, reserve, and often in contempt of others. Another definition of pride is to have a very low view of God and a very high view of self, which places the created being, man, higher than the creator, God himself, which consists of a refusal to glorify God, a refusal to give God thanks, and a refusal to worship God according to his commands. And in this weekly study we've been going over, pride tells us that we we are the most significant beings in all the universe. Thus we believe our work, family, friends, and God himself exists for us. Our desires must be given highest priority regardless of whom we hurt when we are thinking and pride and our root sin is pride. Look how the root sin of pride leads to the defilement of the flesh. Romans 1, 21 through 27. I'll read that. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to the dishonorable passions, for their females exchanged the natural function for that which is is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another, males with males committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And we see this in Jude verse 7, the root sin of pride may have started out small, then spread to every person into the surrounding cities and led these people and their land to undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And you should be aware, if you want to go down that path and if you want to start out lusting over women, there may be a day where you can't turn from lusting over men. You should only expect eternal punishment when that happens. One other way I know the root sin of sexual immorality and homosexuality is pride is because when you read this Bible carefully, first of all, we showed in Ezekiel that he calls out Sodom and Gomorrah for their pride, but when you read your Bible carefully and you go over what a humble person, a humble servant of the God looks like, of our God, the humble servant always flees from sexual immorality. They don't fight it, 
They don't stand up against it, they flee because they know it will overtake them. And that's the opposite of being prideful. <clears throat> so this spread to all the cities. If you notice in Genesis 19 that every man in the city was involved in the act of homosexuality. This wasn't just a little thing. It was spread all over, every man. Genesis 19, verse 4. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called out to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Every man in the city. That's scary to think about. So let's move on to Jude 8, and we'll come back and look into depth at that, the fruit sin of these imposters that we see in Jude 8. Jude 8. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheme glorious ones. And Jude starts verse 8. He says, yet in the same way. And Jude is saying that these men have the same root sins as the people that Jesus saved out of the land of Egypt in verse 5, the angels in verse 6, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. And these root sins will lead to similar fruit sins as well. So at the same time, Jude is saying that these men are under the same condemnation until the judgment of the great day, these imposters that have crept inside the church that have these same root sins that they're unwilling to de deal with. They should expect the same judgment that they just saw in these three Old Testament examples. Who are these men that Jude is speaking of? Of course, it's the men and women who have crept into the church unnoticed in Jude 4. So Jude 8, yet in the same way these men also by dreaming. What does Jude mean when he says these men also by dreaming? Well, this is the negative statement. He's using the negative part of dreaming. So dreaming means having thoughts or ideas and sleep. But the word sleep in the negative means to live thoughtlessly, to be careless, inattentive, or unconcerned, to not be vigilant. We think sleep just means we're taking a nap or sleeping through the night. But you're awake during this sleep, during this negative sleep. KJV in Jude 8 says, likewise also these filthy dreamers. So they use dreamers. Dreamers means one who dreams, a fanciful man, a visionary, one who forms or entertains vain schemes as a political dreamer, a man lost in wild imagination, a mope, a sluggard. See, he's not talking about these guys got a dream in their sleep. He's saying this is how they live because this is how they think. They're awake, but one could say they're asleep. Isaiah 29 gives us a picture of the negative side of dreams and sleep that come upon the people who are under the judgment of God. Isaiah 29, verses 5 through 8. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise with a whirlwind and tempest and the flame of the devouring fire 
and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night, as when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating, and awakes with his hunger not satisfied, or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Astonish yourselves, and be astonished. Blind yourselves, and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. See, you can be fully awake and be asleep. Peter calls us to be sober-minded, self-controlled. That's the opposite of what Jude says, these filthy dreamers. Matthew 25, 1 through 13, Jesus warns all people to stay awake. And he gave the example of the five foolish virgins that fell asleep when they were not ready for the bridegroom to come. And when they awoke from their sleep, they had no time to prepare to go with the Lord. And the Lord shut the door of grace, never to be opened again to them. Jesus says that the five foolish virgins were careless and slept right up until the point that when they awoke, it was time to go into eternal punishment. And Jude will point out two more times in his short letter that these imposters are following after their own lusts, following after their own ungodly lusts. So they're in a sleep, a deep sleep under the judgment, the temporal judgment of God while they're living right now. Jude at the same time is stating that these imposters, by dreaming, they refuse to listen to reason or truth or the truth of God's word, which in like manner, as the three Old Testament examples, invite eternal punishment upon themselves. Proverbs says, buy truth and sell it not. These people refuse the truth. Back to Jude 8. Yet in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheme glorious ones. So now let's look at this in the context of verses 5 and 7 and see what it looks like in the church setting so we can learn how to contend for the faith against the root sins that lead to the fruit sins of these imposters. And also we will look at what may happen when the church does not contend for the faith against the root sins and these imposters while it's spreading throughout the church. And we won't look at how to contend for the faith today, but we're just going to start looking at these fruit sins in the church setting. So Jude 5. Now I want to remind you, though you know all things, that Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And then we'll add Jude 8 to that. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, blaspheme the glorious ones. And I previously said that we saw the root sin of verse 5 was unbelief, followed by the fruit sin, verse 8, blaming, speaking evil against, assembling against, 
and grumbling against God's appointed servants. It is not as if the people that Jesus brought out of the land of Egypt did not believe that God exists. I said their root sin was unbelief. But they did not believe who God said he is, and they did not truly believe that God is sovereign, especially in their own lives and the situations that they're in. And they were never truly satisfied with Jesus alone. We must look at this in the context and think biblically. Read to you Psalm 78, 12 through 22. In the sight of their fathers, he has performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they still sinned more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock, and so the water gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. See, you can come into this church and say, I believe in God. But that doesn't mean you truly believe who he says he is in his word, and you truly don't believe he is sovereign over all of his creation. One man's definition of unbelief, our willful choice not to believe what God says about himself is really true. What he says about man is really true. What he says about the law is really true. What he says about worship is really true. Unbelief is the willful rejection of God's voice and preference for other voices. Unbelief is not listening to the voice of Jesus Christ. That's the true unbelief, that these people, their root sin, they would not listen. The root sin of unbelief caused the fruit sin of these people, which was to blame Moses and Aaron to speak evil against Moses and Aaron, to assemble against Moses and Aaron, to grumble against Moses and Aaron, who were God's appointed servants, to lead the people into the promised land that God had given to them. Psalm 78 just said they kept doing this against God. But God, because they couldn't get to him, they had to do it to the closest ones, Moses and Aaron. So now let's put this in the context of the local church where Jude says that certain persons, imposters, have crept in unnoticed. So these imposters, this is my own sanctified imagination here, so use yours. These imposters have had some sort of experience with God. Maybe they themselves have made a decision to follow Christ. Maybe they in their own power have reformed their life by turning over a new leaf and making their life better according to the religious expectations of their day. 
Maybe they have been educated in the truths of God and are very zealous to help improve and to transform the reputation of the church in order to please God. They see themselves as if they are coming into the church to be a gift to the church. They themselves are deceived. They come into the church and they see the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ working throughout the members of the church. They see people's lives transformed as Jesus brings people from death to life, as he causes them to be born again, as he gives them the free gift of repentance and faith. The impostors seem happy and content to be part of that local church. The honeymoon phase. At some point, the impostors become unhappy with what Jesus is doing amongst his church because they have never repented of their root sin of unbelief. They no longer like the direction that the church is going. They no longer see God's appointed servants as being fit to lead the church. Instead of praying for their hearts to align with God's plan for his church, they become malcontent and begin to think that they have a better plan to lead the church. In their unbelief, they start to gossip with members in the church about God's appointed servants in the church. This gossip is left unchecked and not dealt with by the members of the church because this church believes that love covers a multitude of sins. But at the same time, this church is unwilling to contend for the faith. Eventually, the impostors turn from gossiping about and grumbling too. God's appointed, or grumbling against God's appointed servants with other members of the church following in the footsteps of these imposters. So they turn their gossip into grumbling, and people start following them. At some point, God's appointed servants fall into sin because the fruit of the imposters' unbelief has spread throughout that local church. At that local, tr- that local church is stopped in its tracks from making progress and following the Lord Jesus Christ. So two observations from what I just said. First, the Christians in this local church can fall into the same sin of unbelief as the imposters for a period of time until God chooses to discipline and instruct them to the point that their hearts are broken over their sin of unbelief and they turn back to their Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, in true repentance. Any Christian can fall into this sin when that's the environment they're in. Second observation, 2 Timothy 3.13, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So these imposters, they're not brokenhearted over their sin because the Lord does not discipline or instruct them like, they, like he does with his children. And therefore, these imposters continue on their root sin of unbelief, even when their fruit sin might be tamed for a short period of time. The Christians are repenting of their unbelief, so the imposters have to cut back the fruit, take a little bit of the fruit off, but they never deal with the root. And we have an example of what this looks like in the scriptures Praise God. And it has to do with what we've been looking at. Numbers 20, verses 2 through 13. Now there was no water for the congregation, 
And they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of the land of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring forth water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to hold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses and Aaron were just in the presence of the glory of God. The Lord spoke to them himself, and they still fell into the sin of unbelief. And in our study that we've been looking at, it says, When Moses disobeyed God by striking the rock out of anger... He did not honor God as holy before the people. The real root of this dishonor to God was a lurking unbelief in Moses' heart. In some manner, this man of God had not taken God's word to heart. His doubt of God's word led him to disobey. Moses ultimately lost the privilege of taking Israel into the promised land because of this sin. Clearly, for Moses to repent, He needed to deal with more than the external sin, that fruit sin of the angry outbursts. He must turn from the root sin of unbelief. You see, the church today would say, Moses, you shouldn't have struck the rock. You need to repent of your anger. But God charged Moses with the sin of unbelief. That's the sin he needed to repent of. We shouldn't just look at the fruit. The root sin was unbelief. We need to go to the heart of the matter. But when you deal with that, people are offended, even Christians. When you say, get rid of the fruit, let's not even keep doing the fruit, let's not talk about the fruit and let's go to the root, they get offended because they want the fruit gone. They're not worried about the root. How can you contend for the faith with the imposter in this situation? Read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
verse 14 through 21. And you can tell the imposter this. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that they who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As God is pleading through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Why would I share the gospel with the imposter? Because I'm supposed to share the gospel with everybody who is in sin. We don't just walk away from the imposter. We have to realize there's an audience There's always an audience, and they need to hear the gospel too, and they need to see its saving power. So let's move on, Jude 6. And the angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, followed by Jude 8. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, reject authority. And we saw when we looked at that that the root sin was stubbornness, rebellion. And in verse 6, followed by the fruit sin of rejecting authority in verse 8. So the word authority here in verse 8 is also translated as lordship or dominion. Paul uses it in Ephesians 1.21. He uses it in Colossians chapter 1 as well. Jude says that these imposters have crept into the church and profess that Jesus is Lord, but reject the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ. Remember, the imposters come in saying that Jesus is Lord in order to look like the Christians in the church, but their lives prove that Jesus is truly not their Lord, but the root sin of stubbornness rebellion is still their master. Therefore, the imposters never turn from their sins completely to true repentance, and they never come to a true obedience to Jesus Christ in faith. And I'm not talking about perfectionism, but true repentance and faith that doesn't just profess that Jesus is Lord, but their life proves that Jesus is Lord. You can repent of the fruit sins, and Jesus is still not your Lord. You can clean up your act, and that doesn't mean he's Lord. Stubbornness, rebellion, still their master. Therefore, the imposters never turn from their sins completely in a true repentance, and they never come to true obedience to Jesus Christ in faith. 
we get a picture of that in the life of King Saul, 1 Samuel. And it's an example of what these imposters look like. 1 Samuel 10.10, speaking of King Saul, the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. In the same way, these imposters that have crept into the church, they've had, a relig- they've had a religious experience of some sort. King Saul is not obedient to God's commands, and he, is, and he blames his lack of obedience and his unwillingness to be the king that God made him to be on the people. Instead of being responsible for his own actions, he blames the people. 1 Samuel 15, 17 through 21. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you as king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pronounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, the sacrifice to sacrifice to the Lord your God and Gilgal. They were commanded to take out all of them, including the king, including the women and the babies, and every sheep, every oxen, every living thing was supposed to be wiped out. And Saul keeps the king for himself and lets the people have all the spoils and blames it on the people. In the same way, these imposters profess that Jesus is Lord, but refuse to be the people that God has called them to be in obedience to Jesus Christ. So an example that is common in our day, it's common, is that the professing Christian men who are called to lead their household refuse to lead it in a way God has commanded them, and they force their wives to do all the work in the family setting. And they refuse to lead their family like Jesus Christ And they're unwilling to be the greatest servant in their household. Just as Saul, King Saul, was unwilling to lead the people that God had placed under his care. That is the common sin amongst the professing Christian church today. Men will not lead. Even in the church setting. But the way to see it is go to their home. Are they the greatest servant? Because if they're like our master, they're the greatest servant. Instead, they lay all their work on their family. Has your faith caused you to be obedient to Jesus Christ for his glory in every aspect of your life and not just in the church setting? It's easy to come here on Sunday and profess Christianity. It's easy to come on Sunday and look like the leader of your family. It's easy to come on Sunday and be up here and preach and look like I'm a leader in the church. What does it look like in the rest of my life, and what does it look like in yours? 
Look at King Saul's false repentance as he blames the people for his sin instead of repenting for his root sin of stubborn rebellion. 1 Samuel 15, 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. In the same way, the impostors that Jude is speaking about blame their sins on others around them, just as Adam blamed Eve when he sinned. And they are never willing to repent of their root sin of stubbornness, rebellion. And let's look at 1 Samuel 15, 30. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. And if you read into this, Saul did not want to repent publicly because he did not want to lose his honor. And that's how the imposters are. In the same way, the imposters, they keep their false repentance private, maybe in a one-on-one context, so that they may receive honor without any shame for their sins from the people around them. Just like King Saul acted when he looked like he may have repented, we see that he wants his repentance to be, private, be a private matter between him and Samuel. And he wants Samuel to honor him before the elders of his people, which shows that this is truly false repentance. Do you keep your repentance private? Or do you make it public so that God may be glorified? It's one way to know if it's true or false repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11, this is what true repentance looks like. For godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world brings about death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has brought upon you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. And what is he saying? You've proved to everyone publicly that you've truly repented. The thief gave back everything he stole. The tax collector only asked for the tax that he was due. The Roman soldiers just did their job and were not ruling over the people. The repentant people make it public that they've repented. They go, they ask everyone forgiveness for forgiveness. They don't just keep it private. It's not just a godly sorrow. And you see Paul here, he's not saying that they were innocent of committing sins, but that their repentance has led to salvation in Jesus Christ. This godly repentance that everybody knows about. They proved it to every last person they could. So the question is, can you say this about your repentance? This is how you contend for the faith in your own life. Can you say this about your repentance? I'm just going to end by reading Colossians 6 through 15. 
or Colossians chapter 2, 6 through 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and being built up in him, and having been established in your faith, just as you were instructed and abounding with thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh, in the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of degrees against which was hostile to us. He also has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him, Jesus Christ. Is this your faith? Has it been forgiven by Christ? Have you went to him with all of your sins and dropped them before the cross and just cling to the cross? Give them up. Amen.